Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing sumit nagar's amazing track record in the small cap and mid cap space is no fluke he has a solid decision making process on which stocks to buy how much to buy and equally importantly when to sell we dig into each of these aspects we also talk about asset allocation india's prospects and new age tech stocks listen in sumit welcome to uh, the uh, mint equity master investor art delighted to have you on this podcast uh, thank you we've been we've been coordinating this for some time and uh, i'm sure you know the wait is going to be worth it so one thing i want to i want to kick this investor hour off generally how we do the uh, you know the investor hour which is uh, could you talk to us and share with us a little bit about yourself uh in your in in your case i'll also ask you to share about malabar investments but first about your personal life tell us where you grew up which cities you lived in and also a little bit about your family and whether there was any investment angle you know while you were growing up you know whether there were ipo firms lying around the house uh, and all that sure sure uh, i'm happy to to share uh hopefully i'll keep it brief enough so that uh it doesn't bore any of the listeners Sorry, but uh yeah. um uh so i was born and brought up in an mp uh, so i lived in a few places uh, with an mp um and uh, uh the place i was born was uh, was uh, close to ratlam um and 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 that itself has an interesting story i may uh, you know come back to it uh but uh, you know we we lived uh, when i was very young uh, close to ratlam grew up there and then uh, later on uh, you know went to bhopal which is where i did most of my schooling and then came to uh, indore uh, you know for my high school uh, and then eventually came to mumbai for undergrad so 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 this is sort of my my uh, you know growing up uh, growing up journey yeah uh, and about your uh, family a little bit if you can please. sure sure So see that you know I, I mentioned about this uh, you know place where I was born. It's a small village actually, I think close to Ratlam, and it's interesting because we have no family connection to that place. I've actually never been there since I was two months two months old, uh, and the reason for that is very unusual, right? It was because uh, uh, my grandmom, my mother's mom, or my nanny uh, was working there. Now that itself is unusual because back in those days, uh, people uh, people didn't work. uh let alone sort of work in sort of remote remote places um and 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 so the interesting part there the, the reason i sort of bring this up is that on the one hand i've had sort of a pretty smooth journey right i i grew up in an environment where uh my parents uh you know were very caring very focused around education my father was a professor uh, there was always this uh, environment at home about learning things about studying I had two elder brothers who were good role models, and and so I learned from them. Try to catch up with them, uh, and 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 so it's sort of 
you know, through school, it was very smooth sail. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get into IIT and, you know, post that, have been able to, you know, go to uh, good uh, uh, organizations to work, uh, good institutions to study further. So it's been a fairly smooth journey that way. But I think um, there is always, uh, you know, a foundation that allowed you for all of that to happen. And there's a lot of sort of sacrifice um, and uh, and effort and toil that has gone behind that, and and that's where it's sort of important, right? So, uh, in 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 my mom's and her, in her mom's case, my nanny's case, uh, they were unfortunate that my nana passed away when my mom was four, and my nanny was only uh, 21 years old, and they didn't have much of uh, you know family saving or wealth, so she had no choice but to work to support the family and. Uh, she worked at a pharmaceutical plant and then got trained as a nurse and then for the next two or three decades worked uh, as a nurse and became uh, the, the, the head nurse uh, over time. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all of that hard work of traveling to different places, finding this job, having young kids, sort of growing them, educating them. Uh, if she had given up anywhere along that path, uh, we would not be having this conversation today, right? So I think... Uh, there's a lot of that effort and sacrifice that went in. And, and I see a similar thing on my dad's side. My dad grew up in a small village uh, between Indore and Bhopal. And where, you know, everybody was sort of involved in agriculture, like his brothers were involved. And he at an early age sort of wanted to study. And, but there were no avenues to study, right? So since he was 10 years old, he left home and... Uh, you know, there were no boarding schools back then, right? So he was like, first he was, uh, uh, you know, sort of putting up with some relatives here and there. And at a fairly early age, I think he, you know, found a close friend and and they became roommates. And so very early age, you know, staying away, taking care of yourself, uh, uh, you know, for food, studying. But he went on to, to study engineering and, you know, became an engineer and then later on a professor. But again, like, so much going out of the norm, right? To yeah. pursue something that he wanted. And then ultimately both my mom and dad coming together and sort of creating that environment at home, which allowed us to study and to get to these uh, educational institution. Uh, you know, that's what made it possible. Yeah, that, that's the stories we share and the experience. It's so critical, right? Because uh, when people are looking at uh, their journeys, uh, so much of it is just chance that has been that happened way before you could have taken any deliberate decision in your life, right? Yeah. And uh, any uh, you know any amount of importance you attribute to that is not enough. Uh, the way it's panned out. So your father was a professor, you say. Uh, 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 what, so he was, I guess. Uh, what what was he teaching, if I may ask? He he was teaching uh, mechanical engineering, and not that he, he I don't think he ever asked me to sort of look at engineering. I don't think we ever had a conversation around that, but I do remember uh, I was, when I was uh, between second or third grade, I was about eight years old, uh, that, you know, like most kids want to go with their dads to uh, their workplace. And, and so I went with them. And at that time he was running this metrology lab, right? Which is, uh, you know, this large lab filled of uh, all these instruments that measure things very accurately and minutely. And, and I was just fascinated by looking at those, right? And uh, I, I remember seeing this microscope and, and how you'd look at the speck of dust, which looks like a big rock, 
right? Yeah. Or even like looking at my little finger and saying, oh my God, it has like so <laughs> many features that I, I, I never thought. And that just sort of curiosity, uh, you know, just sort of like, I said, this is amazing. And then we went and saw a workshop and, you know, how they would take, you know, a big piece of metal and, 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 and could shape into something uh, very beautiful or functional. And, uh, and so, you know, I think at a very early age, I sort of uh, decided that, hey, I want to be, become, an, become an engineer. And, and it just sort of came, you know, there was a natural curiosity. I was always breaking open these toys and seeing how they function and how they work. Yeah. And so it was just a natural curiosity that led in, in that direction. So I don't think I ever had any conversation with, uh, with, uh, with my parents about what I want to study. It was just, it was clear to me from very early age that this is what I wanted That's to so pursue. Nice. That's so nice to hear. Uh, when you were growing up, did you come across any discussions or were you part of any discussions related to investments? Uh, be the stock Zilch. market. Zilch. Zilch. Zilch, right? <laughs> so investing was there. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was investment, right? That you you study and you learn. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, like most uh, middle-class uh, families, I think our parents, uh, you know, did focus a lot on, on, on savings and building assets, but it was always with a very conservative view. And and that was the need of the hour, right? I mean, back then there were not too many other opportunities. So I think it was a very, uh, you know, investing was never a topic that came up. Uh, even when I was uh, forget about at home, even when I went to college, uh, and and IT is a sort of fair bit of exposure, but even there, investing as a potential career option was not even in the top ten. Wow. <laughs> like it was, in, uh, I mean, forget about then. Even today, if you ask me, what are my uh, you know, what would be my dream job? It would be number one, be a teacher. Number two, uh, 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 be an engineer. And, and, and number three, be an entrepreneur, right? So, wow. yeah. so I'm an accidental investor. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so it was not something that, uh, you know, focused on. I think even, I remember that uh, when I was at IIT, uh, uh, there were, I think, two individuals that I know of who were actually involved in, investing in the market only two of the 2000 i'm sure there were more but two that i knew of right okay. uh, so it wasn't something that was um, uh, pursued uh, uh, honestly i think uh, it was probably thought upon as uh, as as not in intellectually uh, you know strong enough and i think it probably still i think most of my friends probably still think that what am i doing right <laughs> you know this is this is so far beneath us right <laughs> they're doing the real stuff building stuff you know cracking big ideas absolutely absolutely, yeah. absolutely right and and so uh, you know so i think but 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 a lot of the foundational stuff help you become a good investor and i i may come back to touch upon this later as well but i think when i was at IIT, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it was really about um, getting a rounded education, right? I, I don't think I did that too much of studying, uh, you know, there, but it was a lot of education, right? I, I, it was a lot about, uh, you know, getting to know uh, people. I mean, to give you a sense, in the first 17 years of my life, I didn't set foot out, outside the state of MP, right? So that's how insulated uh, a life that I had until then. And so it was eye-opening to come to a place uh, like Mumbai and, you know, get exposure to, uh, you know, people from different backgrounds. It was just so much just fascinating to learn from them and their experiences and, and sort of adjusting with them. And then later on, you know, I got involved in, in 
organizing things. I mean, we used to have this festival called as Mood Indigo, and I, I sort of in my last year, I, I ran that. And, and so it was a very interesting experience. It was almost like running an organization. The only thing is that you don't pay people, right? So yeah. how do you motivate people? How do you get them to work so hard uh, for uh, something where they're not getting paid? It doesn't help them. So I think those things are great experiences that you learn from. Um, but but at a more fundamental level, I think what uh, I, I would say any engineering education does is is gets you into this mode of rational thinking, right? Is to just uh, you know look at any particular situation and say uh, how does this happen? How do you analyze this? Uh, how can you make it better? And and I think those those fundamental ethos sort of stayed with you forever. And those are very useful in investing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, wasn't it wasn't it Charlie Munger who said something about physics being very critical to every aspect of life and everyone should learn physics? I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Charlie talks about this whole interdisciplinary, uh, yeah. you know, sort of learning, and 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 that's uh, uh, extremely important, right? Because there there's so many important uh, lessons from each of these disciplines. Uh, that you can learn from and they uh, and you can once you sort of learn them and you can from. understand the pattern recognition you can apply them in many different cases right yeah. um and and so yeah so that was a foundation that was quite uh, quite useful now you know post i think you know, I, you know back in our days right uh, sorry, sorry. When you say seven, our yeah. days, when when you say our days in IT, you graduated <laughs> which year? Just just so I, that I, I graduated in ninety three, so it was a, it's a while ago. Oh, yeah. So, okay. um, so back then, essentially, uh, your ticket to uh, to success and you know most accepted path was that you study well, you get good grades, you apply to colleges in the US, and you get a scholarship, you go and study there, and then you get a job and 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 you create a good life uh, over there, right? So that was uh, that was a, the deterministically sort of the best part of of success that was there. Uh, there were not that many opportunities uh, in India, unfortunately, back then, uh, or they were just getting uh, you know so sort of set up you know post liberalization. Uh, but I was sort of clear that I didn't want to pursue that path. You know, I, I liked working. I you know I wanted to be an engineer, and. Um, and and it was during my third year that I got um, uh, exposure to uh, oil and gas exploration, which is a very you know particular theme. But you know, one of my uh, seniors uh, or mentors uh, joined this firm called Schlumberger, which was a, fran a Franco-American firm, and it was one of those rare firms which used to come and recruit uh, you know from India back in those days, and give you an opportunity to work uh, you know sort of around the world, and. Um, and so he invited me to come uh, to Baroda where he was uh, training. And I went and saw, and I was just, again, I think very fascinated to see the kind of work they did. And um, he introduced me to a gentleman who was running, uh, you know, that operation. Uh, uh, he, he was a uh, Singaporean of, of Sri Lankan descent. And, um, uh, and, and uh, I sort of uh, uh, appealed to him that, hey, give me a chance to come and work with you for the summer. And and he was he sort of uh, uh, kind of said what were you do right well how can you be of use but I sort of persisted and and this is where you know if I go back to uh, the qualities that I you know may have picked from my parents I think my mom I think through her experiences just learned to be um, uh, you know very persistent and 
and uh, and that fighting spread to sort of remain right. And so I just kept following up with them, and I, I think ultimately he gave up. He's like, um, you know, okay, fine, you can come and work with me for the summer. Um, and and it was a uh, it was a transformative experience, right? I think I got exposure to work, real work. I think most, you know, this was this practical training that we used to do between the third and fourth year, where most people would go and goof off somewhere. And I actually worked. I mean, I worked really hard, and I actually enjoyed it. I said, "This, I like that." And and so I, you know, went on to pursue that after I graduated. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, I probably, you know, I, I had an opportunity to go work uh, uh, with another firm called uh, Baker Hughes, doing the same line of work in 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 Europe. Um, but before I could start there, there was a gap of four or five months, and I said. I can't be sitting for four or five months. And so I went and I took up a job as an automotive engineer at uh, uh, at Canada Honda and actually worked in the plant for, for a few months. It was only a few months, but I, came, I learned so much in those four months that I still lean upon till today, right? Um, and so I did that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I went to Europe, I traveled uh, uh, and worked in a number of different countries. And, and this is where, you know, how education can make that change. So I was saying for the first 17 years of my life, I never left the state of MP. In the next 17 years, I probably, or probably in the next 10 years, I traveled 50 countries, I'd lived in 10 of them. And so just a great experience to go, you immerse yourself in different cultures, work with people, uh, you know, people speaking different languages, managing people much older than you. I think that was a, at an early age, a very interesting experience. But above all, I think what um, what that experience taught me was when you're doing this type of work in remote locations, and back those days, there were no cell phones that you can rely on, right? So any problem that happened, the bug stopped with you. You had to solve it. So whether it was troubleshooting uh, a hardware problem, a software problem, a mechanical problem, a hydraulic problem, or people problem or client problem, you sort of manage that. And, and again, I think that sense of ownership and responsibility, I think this got inculcated and reinforced during, during that period. Um, but interestingly, so this is the first time, you know, this is like several years after I've graduated uh, that I first got exposure to investing. And this is because one of my mentors uh, was an investor and, um, and I started learning about uh, uh, investing from him. And, and I found it pretty interesting, right? That this is, uh, uh, in some ways, I think I, I gravitated towards fundamental or value investing because it just was very rational. Yep. And that's something that, that appealed to me. I'm not and surprised. That, You're an engineer at heart. It has to be logical. <laughs> there has yeah. to be numbers. It has to add up. <laughs> it has to add up. And, and, and as I learned that, I realized fairly early on that uh, in order to be an investor, you have to understand businesses. And learning about businesses uh, was actually very similar to learning about machines, right? Okay. Um, you know, there's a there's a way in which they function. There's a way in which they fit in a broader ecosystem. Uh, you know, no company is an island, right? It, it's dependent on suppliers and distributors and customers and so forth. So, so understanding how that ecosystem works uh, and and figuring out what's crucial and what's a linchpin. I mean, these are some of the concepts that you would pick for mechanical engineering and transport them into, into the investing or business world. And so I found it pretty uh, fascinating. I started to dabble on my own, uh, you know, followed sort of this uh, Peter Lynch philosophy of investing in your circle of, you know, competence of things that you know, 
So I knew a lot, you know, fair bit about all industries. So I started to figure out like, what is the value chain? Which are the best players investing in them? And it was great education and learning and putting your money behind what you think. And it, it worked well for a while, but then I, I learned a very good lesson without having paid too much tuition fee for it, mm-hmm. which is that, um, you know, I think in the late nineties, you had this um, uh, oil price decline. And, and even though I picked uh, the best businesses in each one of those uh, value chains, they all suffered because the oil industry as a whole suffered. Right. So I think that's a valuable lesson for, for fundamental investors that uh, the macros do matter. Right. You're not going to make your investment thesis based on the macro, but you can't, uh, you know, you can't ignore that. Right. You can't get, uh, uh, you know, sidetracked because of that. So I think that was a good learning fairly early on. But in general, I would say that phase was useful in two ways. One is in terms of establishing that this is something that I like and I want to pursue. And more importantly, number two, that I don't know enough about investing and I need to learn. And that realization uh, led me to business school. Um, and, and so I went to Wharton uh, and I learned a lot about finan- finan- uh, financial management, about uh, investing, about running businesses, but even other things like accounting or, or marketing or pricing or operations. All of these are good building blocks in understanding businesses and as a result, uh, you know, for investing. So again, you know, very, very useful experience. Um, and, and I was sort of set to go and follow the investing path after that. Um, but while I was there, I had an opportunity to interact with some of my classmates who had gone through consulting background. And I just loved the way they thought through businesses and problems and how these industries are evolving. Again, very rational thinking applied in a, in a qualitative context. And, and I thought this is a training that I can definitely learn from. And I had an opportunity to join uh, McKinsey and Company um, uh, and, uh, and focus on investing, investing work with them. And so I took uh, that up. Uh, initially, I was focused more on technology and technology investing because that was my background. But over time, I looked at a broad range of businesses, uh, um, uh, you know, both um, uh, in US and Europe, but uh, over time, a number of them in India. And, um, and as I did that, I think I, I learned a lot about understanding uh, industries, uh, you know, how they evolve, the competitive landscapes, um, you know, what makes businesses tick, understanding sort of the, the value drivers for these businesses, analyzing them rationally. And, and uh, at, at some point, uh, you know, I was doing a fair bit of work in India. I was advising clients and making investments in India. And what I found was that when they asked about which sectors and which type of companies, some of the best ideas were these smaller bit-sized companies that were growing very well, that had good balance sheets, good cash flows, and yet they traded at, at a discount to where the larger companies were. And when we brought these ideas to the clients, they would agree that these are great ideas, but they would still not invest because these were too small to move the needle. Okay. Right? And when I heard that from... Uh, a number of different clients, it sort of reinforced the view that there is a fair bit of opportunity here, but not many people focusing on it, not because these are not good ideas, but because you can't deploy a lot of capital in there. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, so this whole, you know, going back to Warren Buffett's uh, maxim of, you know, go where the fish are, not where the fishermen are, right? That's right. And, and so I thought this is interesting. So let me get some feedback. So I went and talked to 
some of my mentors or value investors or some clients and say, this is a thesis, this is what I'm seeing. Uh, you know, do you have any feedback on this or any advice? And two, would you like to invest in this, right? And, and it was in this process that I met, um, you know, Sash uh, Spencer, who used to be a McKinsey partner back in the 70s, went on to run a successful private equity firm. And uh, over time, it sort of started to invest in, in, in managers. And he had great success investing in, in China through a, a firm called his Value Partners that he helped you know, sort of invest in early on. Uh, which which invested in small and mid-sized companies uh, in sort of the same way that I was thinking about it. And his view was that India, maybe 10 or 15 years behind, was ripe for it, but he couldn't find any manager who was, who was doing that. So he was, said, I'm ready to back you if you want to get started. And, uh, and, and he was a great uh, mentor in the early days. Unfortunately, he passed away sort of fairly, fairly early on in our journey. Uh, but it was quite helpful to have his word of confidence. And then with that, we got sort of other investors earlier on and we started the journey of Malabar. Yeah. So before we talk a little bit about Malabar, because uh, I'm not sure how many of our viewers and listeners would know exactly what Malabar does. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Just to step back, do you recollect what was your first investment which you made with your own money? Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was Dell Computer. Actually, so that was a, the only. It was because I had great experience buying this mid nineties, right? So yeah, mid nineties. Yeah, yeah. I had great experience um, in 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 buying a computer. I was living in Europe back then, and uh, and you can easily sort of get the laptops with the configuration that you want. And that was the only one where you could do it, and it was just so smooth. Um, and and so based on that experience, I I uh, wow. you know I uh, bought that. Uh, Shambhaji was another an easy one, the company that I knew well. And and so, you know, these were some of the early invest, investments that I... Uh, that you I did like any Indian company that you took a fancy to those days? Or it was, it was Infosys. Infosys. Infosys, yeah. Wow. Uh, and again, it was lucky enough that many of my classmates were, uh, you know, with, some had joined, some were analyzing these, uh, you know, companies early on in those days. And, and you could clearly see that they had the, the right culture uh, in terms of building an organization beyond the individuals, um, and they're building a great reputation, uh, and 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 over time, you know, especially as you got sort of closer to that Y2K panic that people were having, they stood, uh, you know, great uh, chance to benefit from the journey that was that was uh, that was taking place. Right. Yeah. That that's so. Uh, you know, the the entire story uh, you're telling us, you know, a lot of pattern fits through. Right. You're curious. You're always looking to learn. You're always looking for, I don't, or I don't use the word value. You're looking for a logic that adds up, and then you're trying to see whether you know it fits your valuation parameter. Because by then you've learned all your valuations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, I must say that uh, uh, we've had quite a few guests on the Investor Hour, and uh, I think you are unique from the perspective that you. I can tell you at heart you're an engineer. When you're talking about engineering, your face is lighting up. I, I, I guess the same thing will happen when we talk about money. But uh, people who are listening and watching, I think the, for the first 10 minutes, they would have probably thought I've got an engineer on the chat <laughs> I'm talking to him. But I think, the, are you, I'm sure you think about it all the time. Do you think that not just doing the engineering, but having the passion for engineering and working, is it an advantage or a disadvantage when it comes to actual stock picking? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'll come to that. And and I actually forgot one step in between. I get this at this detours, which is once I decided to go do an MBA, uh, it was this year time in between. And I thought that if you know this notion, I didn't understand that the term of this marginal return, but I understood that conceptually that I can spend one more year and I'll probably learn something more. But this is sort of a risk-free year, if you will, that can you go and do something else? And and I actually changed track completely and go and went and worked for a software product company for a year. Um, and, and just so much learning in that one year, right? Understanding of that business. And then the software that I was working on, uh, it was applied in semiconductor businesses. And so I got a chance to learn a lot about semiconductor business. So again, I think in a way you would say that if I knew earlier on that I want to be an investor, there's probably a much shorter path to get there, mm-hmm. right? But I had no idea. Till I think I was age of 25, I had no interest in investing, right? Uh, so this wasn't the goal that I was working towards. So as a result, I've had this very circuitous path to get to the investing world. But in some ways, I'm better for it because uh, I, you know, having seen so many different businesses and how they function and what makes them tick. And even though they're quite different, there are certain similarities to, to their successes. It helps you become a better investor. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. So not the part that I would recommend. If somebody wants to be an investor, <laughs> I don't think they should be going and working in 10 different countries before yeah. picking up investing. But if you've done that, it, it sort of helps you in one way or the other. It's uh, built a foundation. Point. I guess it's built a foundation for you to understand businesses more deeply. Very interesting. So uh, the 2000 market crash, uh, you were you were yet to go to Wharton or you had gone to Wharton by then? I was, I was at Wharton. Um, and so in a way, it was a good time to be at business school. Um, so it was sort of well, very life, life case studies in front of you, huh? All around. Yeah. <laughs> so for the first year of my business school, the value of options that I had left in the software company, uh, they were just going up every day, right? To astronomical figures, right? Uh, and in my second year, they basically came back down, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, again, that's also a good learning, right? That you got to follow the path that makes the most sense. And, you know, particularly the markets and the valuations come and go, right? Don't let that sway the fundamental decisions that you want to make. Yeah. Um, and, and in much the same way, I think, uh, you know, when we started Malabar, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of 07 when we had decided, but back in those days, getting an FI license used to be a, you know, year long process, right? And by the time we got that, Already, it was sort of well into 2008. Market already started to shake up, and and you know just literally after we launched and we made our investments, you had the financial crisis, right? And uh, you know, India was untouchable. Small and mid cap were completely untouchable. Um, but you know, so it would have been very easy to just say that you know what, it was a mistake. Let's fold up, you know, follow some. But but the thing is that ultimately we believed in that thesis. Uh, that this uh, this sort of makes sense, and and I'll talk about that uh, in a, in a second. But uh, but once you sort of decided on that path, then you need to commit and you need to follow that through, right? And and so that's what we ended up doing at Malabar as well. Yeah. So uh, so Malabar. So you're lucky, you know. Indian bureaucracy helped you out by getting your license to you a little late. Uh, but in the sense that when you set up Malabar. What, what did you have as a goal? 
you mentioned the fact that yes, you had seen small companies being ignored by larger investors. You had seen there's value there, uh, but that final step to set up a money management company or what, however you position it, what was the driving force behind that? Yeah, so I think there were there were two things. One was in terms of coming back to India because I was still living in the U.S. back then, um, and and uh, it wasn't an easy call. So I was looking at sort of, I was pretty clear that I wanted to pursue investing, right? So I'd already spent probably more time at McKinsey than I thought. Again, all good time spent, learned a lot. Uh, but ultimately, I think the notion that if I wanted to, if I liked investing and that's what I, I want to pursue, I should just go be an uh, investor uh, instead of advising people on making investment. Um, and luckily, I think just given the amount of exposure that I had uh, to various investors and firms, uh, I had many good options to to pursue, right? To take up uh, a job, and those were sort of very easy ones to take, right? Very, you know, great firms, uh, you know, high pay, uh, you know, good life, so on and so forth. But there were two things that um, that sort of uh, uh, you know I thought about. So one or three things actually. One was um, uh, you know just having spent enough time in India and seeing what was happening here. It was clear to me that uh, that over the course of the next decade, two decades, things will will improve quite considerably, right? And there'll be tremendous scope for value and wealth creation. And and if you wanted to start off, uh, you know, this is a good place to be in, right? When you have that kind of tailwind. Um, uh, secondly, it was, and as I, as I was evaluating the different options, it was actually somebody that I mentored. You know, it was a reverse uh, advice, right? And 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 it was that uh, that forget about everything else, forget about the risk, forget about the money. Um, what would you be most excited about doing? What were you the most passionate about doing? And instead of taking up a job, I think starting something from scratch and building that, I think you know, uh, kindle that that entrepreneurial spirit, right? And yeah. and I think when you think of that way, like no constraint, nothing else. Just purely, what would you be most passionate about, uh, and more driven about working, and 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 then it just sort of makes a choice very clear. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, I think it was it was you know something more on a personal level. My father had some health issues, and 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 I thought that uh, you know if you're if you're halfway around the world, spending time just becomes that much more difficult, and just coming home and and being at least close by uh, uh, would would be important. And I'm glad on that front that that I was here because he unfortunately you know sort of passed away about a decade ago but at least I had five years of much closer interaction with him uh, because I'd moved back to move back to India okay so uh, you set up Malabar uh, you've decided what you want to focus on and uh, uh, I think there were there were a couple of phases in this journey one is the the taper tantrum 2012-13 right yeah. The other is we had this 2018 slowdown. I think uh, ILFS was probably 2018 or 18. Uh, 2018. Yeah. And then we had the pandemic. Uh, talk to us about uh, now you've got your own shop. You're raising money to invest. Uh, talk to us how you navigated these episodes. Because I think a lot of public memory is just focused on two years. Small caps have done well. But small and mid caps have had a pretty volatile decade, I would say. Uh, yeah. more than a decade, probably 15 years. Yeah. So talk to us how you navigated that and where were you, you know, how did the news break, you know? 
uh, how do you react to it? Yeah, so we've had sort of four or five of these uh, cathartic experiences since we started, you know, 15 years ago now, yeah. right? So we had the, obviously the first one, the financial crisis was, you know, we invested all our capital and boom, right? For six months straight, the market comes down, right? So, uh, you know, so that was one. Uh, then we had uh, 2010-11, right? In the European crisis, I think that was another one. Taper tantrum, you know, small ones in, in 2016 at the beginning of the year and end of the year with- uh, China, there was a China uh, related. Was the China? Well, 2016 was the demon at the end. At the beginning was okay, that's uh, okay. China. Mm -hmm. And then 18, you had the uh, Allen Rippers crisis. Then you had the, uh, the, the, the COVID, right? So, so this is a given. It, it, it should no longer be a surprise, right? That every few years there would be something, right? And you know, if you, if you detach yourself from the pain of going, you know, things going down, uh, as a long-term investor, I think the way I see this is that you know, I individually or our team or our investors will be investing more capital over the course of next decade or two decades, right? So if you're a net investor of capital you should actually be excited by these periodic declines that happen in the market because they give you an opportunity to invest in good quality companies at reasonable valuations, right? So, so you need to sort of take that in your stride. You need to sort of think through it um, rationally. I think for a typical economic slowdown, you know, there's usually a playbook of how you play that. Um, but then, you know, you have COVID, for which there was no playbook, but, but then you develop it on the fly. Uh, but ultimately, I think, you owe it to yourself and more importantly to your investor to think rationally through those periods, right? This is not the time to just take knee-jerk reactions. You think rationally what makes more sense, you make the right choices, and, and then you back yourself with that, right? Um, and if I were to just take a step back, I think that, that the original, uh, you know, the thesis from Malabar of what, why we do what we do, right? You know, what the first one I touched upon, right? But I think it's very clear that over the course of next uh, two, three, four decades, India is going to be the fastest growing large economy in the world. And usually, when there's a fair bit of economic growth, uh, uh, and especially when it comes from lower levels, it, it provides ample opportunities for value creation and wealth creation, right? So, uh, so that's sort of the first, uh, you know, driver. The second driver, uh, you know, behind that and why we focus on smaller, mid sized companies is that. Um, is that over longer periods of time, the smaller companies have the ability to grow a lot faster compared to larger companies. It's just the law of numbers, Oops. right? I mean, it's, it's like a five-year-old kid grows in percentage terms faster than a 10-year-old kid who grows faster than a 15-year-old kid, right? Just yeah. law of nature, right? In percentage terms, uh, you know, that's what matters. And unless you had unlimited amount of capital, percentage growth is what you're, what you're looking at, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so that's why the focus on the, the, the smaller mid cap and it's also because it happens to be a more inefficient part of the market, right? So where your work, your research can actually make, uh, a, a make a difference. Um, and so that's the second part. And the third one is that, and this is recognizing that while it, it can grow faster than larger companies, you know, the segment happens to be more volatile, right? But that volatility is in two parts. One is just the market volatility, and there's not much that you can do about that, right? Uh, it's just endemic to smaller companies that they have low liquidity, small amount of uh, buying or selling can move the price, right? 
but what is more important is the second type of volatility, which is the business volatility, right? Is that with economic cycles, most smaller companies tend to have more volatile performance, but that's something you can control. If you pick the right set of companies, uh, they can actually have far less volatility com- on, from an economic perspective in terms of their revenues, their profits, their cash flows. And if you can manage that volatility well, you know that over the long term, the price will reflect that performance, while it may be volatile along the way. And, and, and so there, what is most important to you is to have capital that's with you for long term. And that's why we have gone way out of our way to ensure that we get very long-term committed capital from our investors. Um, and, and, and in that process, if you have to give up certain fees, if you have to give up uh, a large number of investors, because people don't like to commit uh, capital for long-term to invest in public markets, it limits your business opportunity, but that is the right approach to be investing in the, in the, in the segment. Um, Since you mentioned investment horizon, uh, what is your typical when you're when you're pitching to someone? What do you say? How many years or how many decades should one think of in their head when they're giving you money? See, when we are uh, when we are underwriting the investments, and that's why it has to align, right? So when we're underwriting investments, we're underwriting them with a minimum five-year perspective. Five that's the investment horizon that we look at, and that's what when we go to our investors, we ask them to. Uh, give us the money with committed capital for five five years. Um, uh, our average holding periods are probably closer to six or seven years, and there are companies that you know we can hold for fairly long. I'm pretty sure that before I hang up my boots, we'll have companies that we've been in the portfolio for two decades, right? Um, so uh, you know, so, so so it's not that that's the goal, but it's it's you've got to think at least in that time period because that's what it takes for you know, the business thesis to play out and for the markets to uh, respond to that thesis. In some cases, maybe front loaded, but on average, you know, that's what it takes, right? And, yeah. and so that's our investment horizon. And that's why we tell our investors that if you feel that you may have the need for that money before that, you probably shouldn't be investing into uh, small mid cap, or you probably shouldn't be inv- investing into equities, period. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so uh, about... Uh, pandemic can you tell us how was may 2020 for you how uh, march 2020 for you you know how was it it started off with a little bit of volatility i think the news had almost filtered in completely uh and then you had this big sell-off and then the i think mm-hmm. it was the fed announced the first uh, cut in rates or injection of liquidity and then you know in april what had to happen happened how were you seeing that pass through in front of you and what were you deciding to do yeah so as I said, I think you know in the past when we have seen these seen these economic cycles, uh, we've had a very clear playbook, right? So as the markets sort of go up when the valuations are high, typically we would start to become more defensive. You would see the cash level in the portfolio sort of go up. So when things decline, you sort of wait some period out, and then you start to deploy capital. And not that you can call the the top or bottom, but generally the period of most optimism is when you want to be uh, on the back foot, you want to have more cash, and when the period of most pessimism, and we want to be fully deployed, right? So I think that playbook sort of generally generally works out. But in case of um, the pandemic, there was no playbook, right? And first of all, it, in the small and mid cap, it already came after almost two years of of declines, right? So the valuations weren't very demanding to begin with, 
and and so that's why generally the allocation levels were on the on the higher side, right? Because that's what that environment would uh, would warrant. Um, and then you had this sort of sudden drop where everything sold off, right? And um, and uh, you know, luckily, you know, I have colleagues who are again equally, if not more, rational. And um, and uh, you know, in those conversations, you probably not hear any panic. It was really just sort of analyzing the situation, right? And 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 I think we were honest and humble enough to say that this is an unknown, unknown, right? You don't know how to deal with that, right? Having said that, we, you know, we what we were doing in that period was talking to all of our portfolio companies. Uh, one is to just ask for their well-being and also sort of how they were preparing for the situation, right? Uh, we're lucky that we had investors or other partners globally, um, some in China, so we could bring some of those learnings and share those uh, with companies in India in terms of you know how you can manage, let's say, factory operations in the face of COVID and so forth. But in that process, I think as we analyze, we said we don't know what the, what the impact is going to be, but we can tell for sure that there is a set of companies which is going to be least impacted, and there's a set of companies that's going to be most impacted. Right, so we actually went and divided all the companies in our portfolio, as well as some of the prospective companies that were on our radar, in these three broad buckets. Right, the bucket one, the set of companies which would have minimal impact. Um, uh, bucket two is one where you may have some impact, but it'll be short-lived, and bucket three where you would have either a deep impact or long-lasting impact. And and so the very easy call for us was number one: whatever extra cash that we had, we deployed in bucket one. Second thing we did was took out some things from bucket three and allocate that into, into bucket one. And even in each one of these, I think interesting, we had sub buckets, right? So each one of these, we had like one A, one B, one C and so on and so forth. So we had these nine sub buckets. And interesting enough, what you found that in the beginning, the early phase of March or April, if you plotted the level of decline from pre, pre-COVID and pre-COVID for a date we picked, Valentine's Day in 2020, right? 14 Feb, no impact. So from that day, if you saw in end of March or beginning of April, um, for each one of these companies, if you if you say what is a percentage decline, and you plotted that along the sub buckets, it was a very narrow band. Everything was down by 30 or 40 percent. And we said this is irrational. The fact that the market is down is not irrational, but fact that these are Everything. all down by the same is irrational, and that's why this sort of movement of capital from what would be most impacted to what should be least impacted, yeah. right? And, and as time went past, you start to see, you know, this, what was a flat line start to pick up the gradient the way you would like, and then it started to move up, right? So eventually um, one or two quarters out, we found that the, some of the bucket one or one A, one B companies were already trading above pre-COVID levels, okay. right? And, and the bucket, three companies were sort of down even further, right? So that's a rational way in which market should have behaved. But in the beginning, it was about creating liquidity and selling what you have. Everything, everything was sold yeah. out. And I think that's yeah. the time the uh, rationality goes for a toss, right? Because the prices are being determined by the crowds and there's panic. And they're selling, they have to get cash. So they're selling whatever mm-hmm. they can. But I like the way you put it because you notice that in, one, two, three, everything had fallen 30, 40%. And that just doesn't make sense because between them, they will be good and bad. And yeah. uh, I think uh, that's a that's a great uh, way to sort of think about it. 
because uh, typically what would have happened uh, at that period is people are saying is going to bounce back so let me buy the stocks uh, whatever was available uh, but to think of it like this where the decision to invest was it was not a just like everything fell the decision to invest was also not generic it was based on your buckets and the way you moved money and uh, i'm not surprised i'm sure you guys had a, a wonderful 2021 at least 2020 uh, that that financial year yeah so i think from a financial perspective the the fund did extremely well through uh, you know those remaining three quarters of calendar 2020 and 2020, and, yeah. and 2021 uh, but obviously it's in the i mean we need to be humble enough to recognize that it's in the backdrop of a lot of suffering and so forth so yeah. um you know can't get too excited about that but i would say that you know in terms of the tasks that we have in terms of managing our investors capital i think we were able to discharge that duty reasonably well during during that period so if I just take that same example to 2022, when things are going berserk, and again, I guess everything is now going up. That Those days, everything was going down. How did you deal with this kind of a melt-up which happened in 2022, early parts of 2022, uh, end of 21? Yeah. So I think it's uh, in end of 2021, I mean, we had seen this movie several times before, right? I mean, you had seen this in, uh, you know, 2010, but 2012, 14. 17, right? So it happens periodically. And in those times, uh, you know, the approach that we take is that we look at each one of the businesses, we have a sense of what is the intrinsic value. When the price goes, starts to go significantly above that, you start to trim that because you know that your prospective returns, at least on risk adjusted basis, are not as, as good, right? So you start to trim those. Um, and, and generally, that's how the cash level builds up uh, in top of the cycle. The only thing that was a little bit different. Uh, you know, this time around, this was the, the up cycle in 2021 was a little different compared to a typical up cycle, right? Which is, it was very uneven. So there were certain sectors of companies were still beaten down. So you could still have some opportunity to deploy the capital, um, uh, which generally in a, in a straight market bull run, you don't get that. And that's why uh, you land up with a lot of cash, uh, you know, at, at top of the cycle, not that you call it, but it's just a byproduct of seeing a lot of companies getting to a rational valuation and not being able to deploy that elsewhere because you don't find good opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so it was a little bit different that way, but I think by and large, we saw this happening, right? And the other thing that happened was, um, was that many of these technology companies that uh, we had known and tracked for some time, um, in some cases, we had evaluated investing in them while they were private. Um, and, and with one or two of them, we had sort of held them in very high regard and, and we would have liked to be investors, but the pace at which their valuation went up through the course of, uh, uh, you know, calendar year 2021 was just mind boggling. And, and so eventually, even after doing a lot of work, we just sort of uh, shrugged and said, we have to walk away because it doesn't make sense to invest at these, uh, at these valuations. And, um, and, and, and our view was that these are good businesses. Some of them may go on to create a lot of value, but you will get probably get a time to buy them at cheaper valuations or cheaper prices at some point okay. down the line. It just happened a lot sooner than what we would have expected. Yeah, so you followed your process through and it, I guess, worked. Uh, and, and that's uh, uh, 
that uh, am I right in saying that takes the emotion out of the decision just by following the process that you have? Because I think in 2021, it must have been a terrible, terribly difficult decision to exit because every all the news, you know, that was a time when you had all those Reddit groups doing all the fancy stuff all over the world, even in India. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of stocks that were going up. And I think only if you were very disciplined could you take the call that these valuations don't make sense and you have to exit. So I'm wondering how a, a typical individual investor would go about protecting themselves from such, you know, fear or greed. Uh, and the best way to do that is probably to have a process which tells you that this is the kind of valuation that is bearable and beyond that level, when it goes to extreme, no matter how much you like the stock, like you're giving the example of those tech companies, you have to say Tata bye-bye and move on. Yeah, so I think valuation is important, right? It's, it's, it's a very important factor in your decision-making process. And if you pay too high a price, uh, your denominator is so big that it, to generate returns from that becomes that much more difficult. So it is quite important to look at the valuation, but it's but valuation is also not an easy decision, right? It's, I mean, you always try to make it formulaic and make it easy and say, you know, here's the PE business you should buy yeah. at or or comparables and so forth. But it's it's really it's a shorthand for a lot of very complex variables that go into it, right? So it's yeah. about the growth trajectory, the evolution of that, the capital intensity in the business or efficiency of it. Uh, the, you know, the many things that go uh, into yep. it, right? To come up with what is the right valuation. But but suffice to say that once you, whatever method you've used to come up with uh, the right valuation or the intrinsic value for the business, you need to have the discipline to buy it at a discount. Uh, and, and when it goes far above that, I would say, you know, if it exceeds that, you don't want to play the neither move of saying that, hey, you know, I know the answer because I've seen, you know, we're humble enough to know that very often we call something expensive and it kept on moving up because the fundamentals were improving. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and your growth trajectory just sort of going from this gradient to this gradient can make a huge difference to what the company is, is worth, right? So, so it's not an easy exercise, not a simple exercise, but just because it's not easy or not simple doesn't mean that you should be doing it. Yeah, the famous uh, phrase, right? It's, it's, it's simple, but not easy. Yeah. You have to really work yeah. hard at doing the simple stuff, right? And you'll have all the success that you want, I guess. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about, uh, let's go a little deeper. You, you, you've touched upon what you look for in a stock a while back. Uh, so talk to us maybe in a little more detail. And if you can share an example from the past, some investment you made, which is not time sensitive on uh, how do you make, what is your decision-making process for a stock? Uh, what kind of filters it has to pass? And uh, that will flow into the discussion on how many stocks you like to hold at one point in time. So let's Correct. start with that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. So broadly speaking, we look at, uh, you know, three factors or, or we call it sort of the three pillars of investing, you know, mm -hmm. for us, right? Uh, and they simply put quality of business, quality of management team, and the valuation that you pay for that combination, right? Um, and, and, but these are sort of very generic high level terms, right? So let me drill down deeper into what we mean by that, right? So when we, when we say quality of a business, what we're looking for is essentially companies that have the ability to grow significantly above the market growth rate uh, for an extended period of time and 
to be able to fund that growth by and large through their own internal accruals, right? Um, but this is a mouthful, right? It involves a lot of different things. For this to happen, what you need is a, is a company or industry where there's a large enough TAM or the total addressable market, the market is sort of growing over a period of time, which provides that runway for growth. Um, but also you need company that has the ability to at least protect, if not grow its market share over, over a period of time. Uh, you need the company to be able to have the inherent economics that generates the cash, uh, which means that return on equity and uh, uh, or return on capital needs to be far above their cost of capital. Um, and, uh, and the capital intensity in the business, right? So whether it's fixed capital or working capital needs to be low enough, right? Mm. Uh, then only this model works, right? That you generate enough cash from your existing operation, you use that to sort of keep growing your future business, and, and you can do it without sort of needing external capital. So in engineering terms, this is your perpetual motion machine. Right? That's right. That was- and, <laughs> and so if you can find that, uh, you know, that's a great business to, to, to be in. But use the businesses like that uh, are not made every day. <laughs> They're few and far in between. And, and if you start drilling into it, you know, just this notion that for a company to have return on equity or capital far above their cost of capital, it cannot, the company cannot sustain that over long term. The competition would not let, let, you, let you have that uh, if there are no barriers to enter, right? Yeah. So, while, so, so the company needs to have a fairly strong moat around their business uh, and, and some sort of competitive advantages that others cannot emulate. And only then can you sustain those economics over the long term and, and can you know, compound uh, those revenues and earnings for your investors. Uh, so so that's, you know, that's basically what you're looking for. And typically you find that when you have these companies uh, you know, as absolute leaders in the niche in which they're operating, right? And so that's a very critical part to understand that just because a company is small doesn't mean that it has a great prospect, right? Usually it's actually that odds are stacked against you, right? Because the larger players have more muscle, they have more advantages. But if you find a, a small niche or a nascent industry or sunrise industry where uh, you are the strongest player within that, then you have all the advantages of incumbent along with uh, having, you know, you have, you're nimble enough to take advantage and grow a lot faster, right? So, so that's what you need to find. Yeah. And so uh, this, uh, when I'm uh, sort of talking to guests on the investor arc, the point on return on capital comes very often, right? The company has to be generating a healthy return on capital. Uh, I don't really come across such a discussion when individuals are investing stocks. Uh, they are still at PE, PE levels and, you know, the, the more basic criteria that they're looking at. Is that something that you come across as well? Because I'm, professionals are definitely mm-hmm. talking return on capital, I know that. But outside of that. Yeah. So again, at the expense of sounding like a nerd, right? <laughs> which, which again, I'll, I'll take that as a badge of honor. But, but the, the real value creation is only when the difference between your return on capital and your cost of capital. That's what really you're earning, right? And the growth allows you to be able to compound that by reinvesting that capital over a period of time. So if you're in a business that's earning 10, 12, 13% return on capital, which in India happens to be the cost of capital, 
you can grow 10 times, you will just not create any value. And let me elaborate why, is because the amount of capital that you would need to fund that growth will take away all the benefit from existing shareholders because you would either need to continuously raise equity, which means dilution for existing investors, or you will need to take on debt, which means that uh, you know, you'll end up paying a lot of interest costs and you'll make the business risky, right? So as an investor, you don't benefit from that, yeah. right? The only reason you benefit is when your return on capital is significantly above the cost of capital and, and then you can generate enough cash to fund your own growth. You don't need to borrow any money. You don't need to dilute yourself. Or if you're really lucky, you can have some extra cash available even yeah. after all of that, right? So that's why this return on capital is very important. And even if you're an individual investors, you can't, you can't ignore that. Yeah, that, that's a that's a very uh, good point. I think it's insightful for all our listeners and viewers to take note of. So the uh, first point was quality of business. Second was quality of management. Of management. This is my favorite topic. So first, please tell us, how do you assess quality of management? What is your, yeah. is, the, is the most qualitative thing in all that, uh, the three points? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very assess? qualitative. But, you know, again, I think, uh, I think it's a quote that is attributed to Einstein, right? Which is that, you know, not everything that can be counted counts and not everything counts can be counted, right? So this is not something you can count, but it's an extremely important factor. But again, extremely important factor from the point of view of a long-term investor. Perhaps if you're a trader, it doesn't matter as much, right? Yeah. But as a long-term investor, we found that the management just tends to have an outsized impact on the outcome of, of, of a business and as a result for your, for your returns. Um, and, and, and as we sort of analyze management over a period of time, we've we've sort of broadly categorized management quality into five different you know, factors. Uh, so these are number one, operational excellence. So how good they are in terms of understanding their business and operations, how well do they understand how the industry is evolving, how the competitive landscape is evolving, how would they stay ahead of the competition um, across their you know, 100, 200, 300 SKUs, where is it that they're losing money? which customer they're losing money on, what is the plan to improve that, how they keep improving the margin year after year after year, how can they absorb it? So these are sort of the nuts and bolts, uh, you know, sort of operational decision. And as you interact with the management, you, you have to evaluate, um, you know, how good they are on this, on this metric, because ultimately that's a very important factor in the companies and rating the revenues and profitability over a period of time. So we had one uh, guest on the podcast. He's a fund manager. And uh, he was, uh, when we were talking about management, he told us he has notes going back 20 years. So he can literally tell the company, in 2002, you told me you're going to be doing this and now you're doing something else. Or, you know, so, uh, but, you know, as a thumb rule, if you don't want to do a very elaborate exercise in trying to understand the management, you have to just measure what they say and what they actually do. Absolutely. If Absolutely. they're doing that, you should be fine. Yeah. And yeah, if you and, digress, and, you can catch it yeah, very quickly. And you, you, and you can easily calibrate after a while in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, whether they underpromise or overpromise and, and how, you know, whether to take what they say on face value or whether you apply a discount or, it, you know, so all of that you can, you can evaluate. But I think that operational capability is number one. Number two, we look at is capital allocation discipline. Right? So, uh, and, and it's a very distinct attribute compared to the operations. You can find people who are very good at managing operations, but actually not so good in terms of capital allocation, right? So, uh, you know, how good they've been over a period of time 
have the allocated capital at the right points in cycle, what is the incremental return on incremental capital employed, so on and so forth, right? So that's that's a very important factor, and particularly for the kind of companies you're investing in, which are generating a lot of cash, yeah. managing that and allocating that is, is quite important. Um, number three, uh, and this is the most qualitative of this entire qualitative gambit, right? Which is integrity <laughs> and governance. And, and it's not an easy thing to get your hands around, but is, as a long-term investor is extremely crucial to ensure that the companies and the management team have the right moral compass that ensure that they would not shortchange their minority investors for time. And, and it just takes a lot of effort. It just takes a lot of pounding the pavement, you know, meeting uh, people who have done business with these guys over a period of time, suppliers, distributors, customers, ex-employees, what have you, right? But if you do enough work, you can actually get a pretty good picture. That's almost like each one of these data points are not useful, but they're all dots. And if you connect them, you actually get a fairly decent picture. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, so that's, uh, and the governance, again, you try to understand how they make decisions, uh, you know, how involved are the board members, do they actually have real conversation and, and boards or not? I mean, we're lucky enough that in many companies where investment, the company is a private, or if we're taking, making a primary investment, um, you know, we, uh, we do have, uh, a board representation or right to board. So we have seen different boards function and you can tell how a good quality board function versus the one where it's just rubber stamping, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so that's the, the fourth one is the, the depth of the management team, right? So of course, when you're investing, a lot of it is, you know, bet on the, on the owner or the promoter, the, the, the person who's driving it, but that is never enough, right? It may be enough today, but if you're investing for this business to become five times or 10 times the size, that's always gonna be the bottleneck, right? So looking at the next level of management, right? You know, how good they are, how capable they are, how much responsibility is being given to them, how well they're compensated, um, you know, do they feel the ownership of what they do? Again, these are subtle points, but very important in long-term success of the, of the company. Um, do you recollect any absolutely crazy moment with a company on its board without naming the company that's fine something we came across absolute uh, like yeah i mean hell is this? yeah we, we've had the cases where you know the the promoter or the owners would give you a very rosy picture of what the business does but when you go to the plant you find there is sort of so much finished good inventory that's lying out and you ask why is this the case right and why are the customers not picking up and and you find out that you know they've had the problem in terms of there's a slowdown customers are not picking up whatever, right? So you find those disconnects, right? So a lot of what we have to do is not rocket science. It's about triangulating things, right? I mean, we have even had the cases, again, without naming names, right? You, you look at the, the, you know, the business that the company does and revenues that, that they make, and it's just a pack of the envelope calculation that if you're saying your revenue is this much, you know, average price of your product is this much, you need to make Y number of units. And you go to their factory and you can take a stopwatch and see, how many units they make in a minute and they have eight lines and, and there's no way in the world you can manufacture enough number of units to make that revenue, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so you walk away right, from situations like that. And, and, you'll, and this is the unfortunate part that you, you still find companies like that, right? Thankfully, over the years, our process has become stringent enough that we can weed out many of these things earlier on, right? The real obvious issues you sort of, uh, read them in your process earlier on, but 
But even then, this entire process of triangulation, right? Even just understanding if a company is saying that they, I mean, I'm stick with the manufacturing example because it's easy to understand, right? You can even simple stuff, right? They say, um, I'm doing this much revenue, triangulating with competition and market share, does this make sense, right? Checking with suppliers that are they sourcing enough raw material to actually make this stuff, right? Um, and, you know, checking with dealers, distributors, right? So it's a fair amount of work and I don't want it to sound very overwhelming, particularly for individual investors, but uh, because they may not have the bandwidth to do all this, That's right. but in many cases you don't need to, right? Because you see the signs of that emerge in, in different ways. But as professional investors, you know, we have this burden of managing other people's hard-earned money. Yeah. And you have to take that very seriously and very carefully. And I that's remember, why go. Yeah. So I remember this uh, China thing. There were investigative reports. I think there's a documentary on that, on uh, the Chinese companies which are listing abroad. So one of these guys actually put a camera outside the factory gate. And he showed how in X number of days, hardly any goods had left the factory. And yet the yeah. factory and they're announcing such big returns and uh, you know revenue numbers and it turned out to be a fraud it was you know just just there people are buying the stock in the u.s thinking there's great stuff happening but all yeah. they're doing is uh you know just uh, putting it by pen or wherever they're punching it in an excel yeah. sheet so yeah uh, and to, to the contrary like we also had cases where we said a company saying that their exports are growing and uh you know we're able to you know it's a landlocked city right so it's easy enough to find out like who are the import export guys and check with them. And they actually corroborated that these guys were sending one container a month. Now they're sending three and they're asking for more, right? So, you know, again, this it's just, this is the diligence you have to do, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, to, to finish this process, if we talk about four of these factors, the fifth one is, is passion. How passionate are the, the is the management team about their business? And, 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 and with the really passionate promoters or entrepreneurs, you can actually feel this in your conversation. You may be having dinner with them half in between, they'll get an idea, they'll like be excited about it, right? They'll pick up the phone, they'll call up somebody, right? So yeah. you want to you want to feel that and you want to see that. And 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 even with two companies, same industry, same quality, everything else, that extra bit of passion can actually add another percentage or two points of growth on top. It may not feel much. But 20% versus 22% compounded over five years makes a huge difference. Right? That's right. And 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 I think you know it is old saying that you know your uh, your your fist is stronger than each one of your fingers is the same thing here that you need all of these five factors together. Okay. You know individually, you know it's like it's an and function, right? You need to have all of these things together. It 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 doesn't mean that each one of these need to be at the scale of ten, right? But yeah. they need to be good enough, and also. In some cases with younger companies, you may not find them, some of the metrics, the second level of management team in a small cap, sometimes is not as strong. But what you would want to see is the, is the trend of that gig, you know, strengthening over a period of time, right? And, and, and that improvement in these fundamentals, whether it's economic fundamentals on the business side or the qualitative fundamentals on the management side okay. over time, that improvement actually ends up uh, creating value over time. Yeah. So uh, you said you look at quality of business, quality of management and valuations. So valuations, I think. Uh, uh, it's, is, is the easiest of the three. And that's why it comes to the, the three, last, yeah. right? Yeah. And it also happens to be a lot more fickle compared to the first two. Right? The quality of business, quality of management team are very enduring. They don't change that easily. Yeah. 
the, the, the quality, the, the valuation can change very easily. And that's why we look at it the last and And if you like the first two and you don't like the valuation, we'll still keep tracking it because you know that six months down the road, a year down the road, we may get an opportunity, right? So, uh, but it's an important part of the puzzle. I think we already talked about that earlier on. So in the context of trying to find the right stocks, you're looking for, you've articulated superbly well on how you look for the business, how you, what are you evaluating the management and the valuations. Can you share, uh, so I have, Two questions. One came from my colleague, which I have to ask you. Uh, mm-hmm. He mentioned Avanti, Avanti seeds, Avanti feeds, uh, feeds, uh, Avanti mm-hmm. feeds. I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with all the small cap, mid caps name. That's okay. So, yeah. So, uh, so Avanti feeds. He. Uh, so the question I got was, we should ask you. It appears you exited the stock right at the peak. Now this was those filters working through for you, which you mentioned that uh, you may like the company, but the, the stocks really rallied up or. Did you come across new information that made you change your mind? Using that as an example to an example, understand right? how this works. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good illustration of a couple of different points. Right? One is in the, at the point of entry. Right? So when we invested, this business was exhibiting characteristics that you don't generally see. Right? It was a business that had 50% ROE and was growing at 50% year on year. Whoa. Right? Okay. And it was available at 10 times speed. Ignored segment right. of the market. You're hunting it's ignored. It's <laughs> There is there, no brokerage house in this country has has any analyst looking at aquaculture or 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 a feed business of any kind, right? So it was just something that fell through the crack. Number one. Number two is that uh, because it was a sunrise industry, it was it was something that didn't exist before. It had just come up. Uh, you know, there was there was a worry in terms of how does this function? Is it a flash in the pan? There were also certain worries about um, not for the feed business, which was what they did, but in in the broader aquaculture business. Uh, you know, Thailand, which was a big player, had a disease issue, and that led to uh, you know big value destruction there. And so, you know, we we ended up researching it like any other company. I mean, me and my colleagues, I think we went to probably more number of shrimp farms than we would care to admit. <laughs> uh, we spoke to a lot of these guys, tried to understand why they use X versus Y, and we established that for a host of reasons that I wouldn't, uh, you know, get into. But Avanti did have a far superior product, and that's why they bought it. So we established that. Number two, we even went to the extent of talking to people in Thailand to understand what led to the disease issues there, and and you analyze that, you you found out that again for a number of very logical reasons you could not have that replicated in India, right? And definitely not with the kind of scale uh, because you have, you know, the, 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 the factors that led to that problem in, in Thailand don't exist in India, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so the risk we sort of understood and, and, and evaluated and eliminated and the fundamentals were quite strong. So we sort of added to it. And then there's also the notion that, it, you know, in a particular year, if things are bad, um, and, and they were growing at such a rapid pace that a bad year means slightly slower growth and slightly lower margin, right? Mm-hmm. But, and so the price was sort of beaten out. So we are already investors for some time. We'd already done quite well, uh, but it was in the, in the beginning of 16 or that time we were, you know, as we did the field work, what we heard was that the price of shrimp was rising and more and more farmers were looking to add uh, to shrimp farms and they were investing behind that. And usually that's a good leading indicator for the feast business to grow. And so we, and the stock was available, you know, back to similar valuations where we 
invested obviously higher price, but similar valuation. So we added a lot more. But then through 2017, you had uh, two or three things happen, right? One is that the, the thesis that we had in terms of the growth coming through did play out, right? So the company ended up having sort of 50% plus year-on-year -year growth, which is stupendous and, uh, you know, and so that was quite well. But the second thing that happened, which to be very honest, we hadn't anticipated or factored in, which was that the commodity prices actually came down. Uh, soybean prices, which is sort of goes into the feed, the prices came down. So as a result, the margins expand, right? And, and so you had a scenario where, uh, you know, the profits went up by 50%, uh, the, sorry, the, the revenues went up by 50%, profit went up by two and a half, something like that. But the stock went up five times, right? So on, on, on very high revenue, I wouldn't call it peak revenue, but on very high revenue and definitely peak margins, people are willing to give it peak multiples for that business. And that combination is not a good one. And, and so that's why we, even though we like the company, let's see how they've managed it. We thought this was the, the right time to exit. Oh, okay. Again, I, I don't want to go into individual stock because I think you, uh, you want to talk more about investing yeah, principles, yeah. but this is more of an illustration of how you rationally think through that's right. on either side of that investment decision. Yeah, so so uh, I think uh, by taking uh, uh, by using a case study, literally, I think it sinks in better because a lot of the viewers may be already aware of that company and the history, etc. So, in that same context, if you will, can you give us an example of one failure that you that really stands out for you in uh, a stock in the process uh, that you that resulted in that stock, and what was the learning you had from that? How did it change your process after that failure? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in investing business, it's, it's impossible not to have mistakes, right? I think what you want to do, and again, I want to talk about it because the framework is important, right? Is that over time, you want to learn from your mistake and you want to minimize them, right? Or at least not make those type of mistakes again, right? So that's one. But in general, if you can reduce the number of mistakes that you make over time, uh, it will sort of help you. And, and usually the mistakes that you make are because you let your greed or excitement uh, overshadow the risk evaluation for that business. Right? By and large, that's the, you know, if you think about investing mistake, that's what tends to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so the number one is in terms of, uh, you know, reducing the number of mistakes you do make and eliminating these sources of mistakes. Number two is to have a process in place so that the amount of capital that gets allocated to the mistakes is actually low. And that's one thing where we, we believe that over the years we've done a fairly good job, right? It's to devise a process where you may take an initiating position um, and you can make a mistake with that, but the position goes up in the portfolio only when uh, you have a certain set of things that get established. And usually poor companies never, or mistakes don't end up qualifying for that. So, so you don't allocate more, more capital. And number three is obviously once you know it's a mistake, you all got to admit it, you know, uh, you know, move on from that. Um, so one of the the mistake and the more reason that we've had some in the past, but I think it's it's better to talk something that's uh, that's uh, more more recent is is a few years ago we had invested in a company uh, called as Uniply, right? And and there it was, um, uh, you know, a change of management that had taken place. Uh, the company had been around for a while, but it was languishing. The new management came in. They put in sort of their own capital. 
They got sort of good other investors to come in. They also had uh, uh, team members come and invest in the company. And, and for the first few years, they've done sort of fairly good job in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of growing the business, improving distribution, improving branding and so forth, right? Um, but ultimately, um, uh, you know, after that initial journey, I think this sort of the, uh, the, the greed of, you know, as you're showing better numbers or showing better price just led to them trying to expand into too many unrelated areas. And I think that was a warning sign for us, right? The first thing they sort of did was to expand and say, we're going to do real estate. And it was real estate because that's a way where you can absorb a lot of the, the ply as well as some of the other building products. But that's a very tenuous connection, right? Um, and, and, and that's sort of the pattern, you know, and then we started to probe more. Then we saw sort of, you know, some of the, the people in the management team leaving and usually know that, that this is a, a bad combination. So while you had the right things in terms of management, making a lot of positive changes, or people putting in their own money, not just the promoter, but also many of the management teams putting their own money. Skin Usually that's a pretty good sign, right? Yep. Skin in the game. Um, but when you see a lot of moving parts like that, it's not a good sign, right? A, a frequent change of strategy and so forth. And um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, that was a bad mistake on our part to not have uh, fully evaluated. I think at the point, I mean, we did a lot of work. It's not that we didn't do the work. We spoke to a lot of uh, you know, channel partners, we um, interacted with the management or other sort of management team, we went to their plants, so on and so forth, right? But uh, um, but ultimately, I think a lot of that value destruction happened because they started, if they had stayed in the ply business, right? Yep. It was a great, because, you know, you had two very strong players and then after that, there's a very wide space. So there was a clear opportunity to become a strong number three players. And had they kept their ambition focused on that, they would have created a lot of value for themselves and for the shareholders. But unfortunately, that didn't uh, turn out to be that way, right? So, just say a lot of companies have ruined the future by venturing into a new age. Just because you have capital, you think you can do any business. And you're so right. Just because you sell ply doesn't necessarily make you a good construction, you know, real estate. Yeah. It's yeah. very extremely tenuous relationship. Yeah, over there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, I think in, 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 in such the only challenge that we have, unfortunately, and which thankfully individual investors don't have, is that if you're investing in small and mid-sized companies, and in many cases, liquidity is against you, right, as a large investor. And so even when you make a call, it really works both ways, right? Sometimes you find the greatest of idea, but liquidity is so low that, you know, you can never build a position fast enough without impacting the price uh, so that it moves a needle for you, right? And same thing on the exit side. But you know that's a message for individual investors that they don't have constraints like that. So in some ways, they have an advantage over over uh, investors like us. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm I'm just going to recap what you said because I think it's so important. The uh, the takeaway from that. So you sold the stock for various reasons, but you could see signs. There's a forward integration being planned, and you're venturing into something which you may not really. Uh, be very clear about and you had management turnover which again is a red flag that you have to investigate and you still do all the other stuff but these are you know the uh, the typical points that come uh, that sort of trigger the thought that maybe you need to relook and see if the investment thesis has changed the other thing you mentioned and i hope i uh, got this right you say uh, so you have a very tight uh, stock filtration process 
you look at the business, the management, the valuation, et cetera, it's come into your portfolio. And I think you just said that you do an initial allocation. And as you get to know the business better, it becomes more core. Did I understand you right? Is that what you guys yeah. do? You're, yeah. not, you're yeah. not jumping headlong because you've done everything. You're still taking it at a step, a step in time. So by and large, that's our approach, right? That we would take a small position and we'll keep adding to it over time. And that's a great thing about public markets that allows you to the ability to do that. Yeah. And even when we have invested into private companies uh, and, and which have gone public later, we follow the same approach, right? So not, you know, just buy a small position in the beginning, as you get more comfort with the business, with the management, you sort of add more to it. And so that way, even if you make a wrong decision, uh, you know, it doesn't impact your portfolio as much, right? So it's a, it's a more, you know, it's, it's a more disciplined approach uh, and, and, and generally sort of keeps you in good stead. Every now and then, it does hamper you in good markets that you added, you did all the work, you added buy a good company, but you you took a small position and then stock sort of really runs up so you don't benefit fully, but you know, you never lose money in that, right? I, I was, you know, I was going to say that because this is basically protecting your downside is that Buffett rule number one, never lose money. So you're doing it very gradually because you don't want to be in a terrible investment with a large allocation, right? And when you yeah, have skin cool. in the game, you start going even deeper, I would assume. You're tracking it even more closely. And that can yeah, help you both ways. Yeah. Of course. And I want to make the distinction, right? Which is that again, the market price decline is a given in the segment that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. You can pick the greatest small cap company and its price, I would not be surprised if it goes down by 25%, you know, in a quarter, right? It's it, you know, it can easily happen, right? So that's why it's extremely important to disassociate the market price movement from fundamental business. And so the way that we internally judge ourselves and evaluate is on the actual um, revenue and earnings performance of the company. And as long as that is there, we're okay to, to take market price volatility because we know that over longer term, market price will reflect the, the intrinsic performance of the company. Yeah, so effectively you are, uh, making the most of the market inefficiency. You've come across a stock, uh, uh, you, you shared that example of 10 times earnings, you know, market is ignoring it for whatever reason, the institutions can't buy, you know, it's a fundamental reason. And if your valuation is what, I guess is the gap between the market price and, you know, you guys, and you, you, you can get to ride it without having to do anything really reckless, if you will, right? Yeah. Uh, so typically in your portfolio, or if you can think like an individual, how many stocks, can, should they be in a portfolio? Yeah. So it depends from individual to individual, right? So it's, it's, yeah. it's a different answer. I think as an individual, you can probably afford to be far more concentrated because you don't have those sort of uh, deployment or liquidity issues. You don't have the, as much diversification or volatility may not be as much of it. So you can afford to be more concentrated. And, you know, as, as somebody would say, you know, why would you not put your capital in your best idea? instead of putting in your 10th best idea, right? So, so as an individual investor, you have a lot more leeway in that. As an institutional investor, we have certain constraints. I think we prefer to the portfolio to be far more concentrated. And so for a small cap fund, our core portfolio, which is 15 positions, typically have bulk of the investment, like so at least say 75, 80% would be in those. And in the mid cap one, it's even more concentrated. So the top 10 position would, would have bulk of that uh, that portfolio, but the reason why it has to be that way is because the just the with 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 sort of bigger capital you 
you can't you can't sort of get into position or get out of them very quick, yeah. quickly. So you'll always have the tail position. Or sometimes you start buying something, the price moves up. You don't want to buy at that price, and that stop position sort of remains in the um, in the portfolio. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so you have you're a little bit more diversification than what you would like. Uh, but at, at a fundamental level, we like concentration and we like to have as much of it as, as we can. And I guess uh, concentration it could be a direct result of the conviction you have in the stock. In that case, it's perfectly fine, right? You don't have to say, I'm going to own 30 stocks, 3.33% to diversify. You, and, I'm, and in a portfolio, you're bound to have even more conviction about some stocks than the others. And yeah. the technical point, maybe they can absorb more capital, not capital, they can their volume on the markets is such that they can probably take in more money as well. So it's a function of uh, multiple things. Yeah. And the last thing I would say that, you know, we don't, we're not passive investors generally, right? So we're, we engage with our companies quite deeply and, uh, it, you know, it depends on I mean, certain companies who are doing a great job by themselves. So we stay out of their way, but many other cases, we, we engage with the companies with the view that if you can help this company with value creation, you've actually played a, a, a constructive role with your capital as opposed to just being a passenger in that journey. And, and, but you can do that only with that many portfolio companies. You can't engage with 50 companies like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so we got a good sense of uh, quite a few things and uh, very helpful on, in terms of how do you go about the selection process. Uh, using that Avanti Feeds example, we have, a, we have also got a, something in our mind from what you said is how do you sell a stock, right? It may be a good company, but if the valuations go crazy, you have to sell. Uh, or in the in case the management is not doing what it's supposed to do, you know, uh, generate the return on capital, or uh, not diversify and blow up the money in an industry you don't understand, and therefore you you don't want to take up the risk. Uh, anything else on the sell criteria that you that you want to add, which is absolutely important, because one of the things that a lot of us have experienced when we meet people is people get wedded to stocks. Uh, a lot of the people take it from Buffett where he buys a stock and holds it for life, right? Uh, but there are, are there other very successful investors who can actually sell. You yourself have, you know, if the valuation goes crazy, you you know, it's better to sell. So how do you reconcile these? And how do you how do you suggest that people think through the sell decision? Yeah. So I think a good way to think through this is, is to always think about at any point in time, you're re-underwriting your portfolio, right? So what is your prospective return from that position uh, you know, going forward despite all the run-up that it has had? And generally you would see that when company has gone up very quickly, uh, it is it has most likely become more expensive and has also become higher rated in your portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're freshly underwriting that portfolio, you would probably not put it in that space, right? So your rational decision in that case is to pare it down, right? But you have to be careful with that, right? Because very often, See, market is quite smart. It's not, in general, things go up because fundamentally there's reason for it to happen that way. In some cases, it could just be a value unlocking or value recognition that happens. But in some cases, the sustained performance is because of an improvement in fundamentals, right? And so what you thought of as intrinsic value in the past, you have to relook at that, right? And again, the notion about, you know, as capital efficiency improves, as a growth trajectory improved, if any of those things have happened, you have to reevaluate it, but suffice to say that the rational view is that if your prospective returns from that point on is mm -hmm. not as good, that's a reason for you to reduce or pair that position yeah. and, and sell. And, and I would say for mass, vast majority of our sell decision fall in that category. 
that the good company, good businesses, they've, you know, the business has done quite well, but the price and valuation have done even better. And it's from a risk reward basis, no longer as attractive. Yeah. And, and so it warrants at least paring it down, if, you know, exiting maybe an extreme case, but at least paring it down and allocating that capital to places where you get better risk reward, right? So that's by far the most important, but also there are other cases where, you know, again, if you get the thesis wrong, as we are talking, you know, if you make a wrong call on the business or the, um, or the management, you know, that's the reason to exit. Or this sort of evaluation within the portfolio to move towards higher concentration means that you get out of your, you know, the lower conviction ideas and allocate yep. that to, to better ideas in the portfolio. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, just moving up a little on, we're talking stocks, small cap, mid cap, but how do you think of asset allocation? And I'm talking now all assets. Uh, when, you're, when you're going about planning your wealth or uh, you know thinking about how you should save for the future, how do you divide and how do you think about property, gold, stocks, cash, bonds? How does it uh, work for you? So I'll answer that quickly, but I will also caveat by saying that it works for me. Probably, you know, yeah. uh, you know, each person has to look at their own situation, right? So, you know, one of the things that I, I learned sort of early on in my life, again, I was going back to the parents and the values, is that it doesn't matter how much you earn, right? You've got to manage your budget in a way that you save something, you know, every month, every year. And if you do that well, you always have the ability to invest, right? So that's, uh, you know, first and foremost, something that I've followed. Um, uh, but then, you know, once you have enough money set aside, cash for a rainy day or to take care of sort of needs that you have, and, and an ongoing basis, if you keep earning more than what you spend, that incremental saving, which you're investing for the long term, the best place for that is equities, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, you know, I would be far more indexed to equities compared to most individuals, because I think, again, if you have these things for you, right? That you have enough money set aside for any exigencies or, or for your needs uh, and ongoing basis you're able to save, right? Then that money is best placed on equities if you have 10, 15, 20 years of saving ahead of you, right? That's the best way that you would build that wealth. And so they're trying to diversify across too many assets actually becomes counterproductive, right? But as you grow sort of further in terms of age or evolution or, or you know, you want to make sure that you still you know, keeping some money for, for uh, you know, needs that you may come, then yes, you have to keep some money in safer assets, right? So, and, and those could be your uh, things, you know, typically things that people have in terms of real estate, gold, fixed income, but knowing that over the long term, all of those would underperform equity. Yeah. Right? Um, so, so again, it's, the answer depends on individual. And, and the other thing I would say, and then this is particularly true for some of the, perhaps the younger um, uh, listeners on, on, on your show is that just start investing early. Don't think that I'm going to do this much later, right? I said, at any point in time, make sure that you save some amount of money, get into this habit of you know, investing with discipline. If you don't have time to evaluate ideas, just put it in a set. It's a great way to sort of build wealth. And you'll be, you'll be astounded with how much money you can, you can compound you know, over a period of 10, 20 years, even by saving as little as a few hundred rupees a month. So uh, I know we are running out of time. I'm, I'm going to still put a few questions yeah. to you, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when you are thinking asset allocation, you're, of course, 
you also have the added advantage of being in the space and you get that. A lot of people who don't get that, like you rightly said, and it's a great advice, you start the SIP. You'll still get exposure. A professional uh, manager can you know, help you out with that. Uh, one of the challenges that I, uh, when I meet people is a lot of them are, uh, let me get this right, income poor, but asset rich. So, mm -hmm. you know, how does one reconcile that? Like, you know, even if you start saving in stocks over time, so I guess it goes back to the sell criteria. If you have a need, you have to sell. But uh, if you had to keep money aside, one of the things that a lot of people talk about is you need to keep 10, 12, 24 months of cash aside so that you are not forced to sell your stocks because that's the biggest risk to actually doing well in stocks. Do you have any thoughts on that? On uh, how do you sort of plan that in such a, uh, you know? Yeah, I think generally it makes sense, right? I mean, anybody who questioned that, I think last two years is a great example of that, right? When, you know, COVID something you know, came out of nowhere, right? Mm -hmm. I think most people at the beginning of 2020, uh, you know, the things or worries they would have had, COVID would not have, you know, ventured anywhere near that. But it can completely upend your life, right? So you can have these kind of things happen. So it, it is important to have a safety net, right? So it is important to have some cash set aside just for any of those needs because the last thing you want to be in a situation is that when you have that need, you're actually forced to sell, um, you know, some of your portfolio because then you run the risk. It may be that, you know, if that need were to arise in end of 2017 or end of 2021, great. But, you know, need doesn't arise like that. It can come at the worst point in time as well. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, so you don't want to run that price. So that's why it's actually, it's quite prudent to keep some amount of money, not in cash, but in something which is relatively liquid investment. So if you need be, you can actually, you know, draw upon that, right? Or, you know, if you have, uh, if you're privileged enough to be in a position where your, your earnings are far more than your expenses, so you know that you can, you can sort of cover that. Um, but otherwise, it, it, it's it's quite prudent to to save money to last you for at least a year or something like that. Yeah. Your thoughts on gold? What do you think of gold as an investment or a safety net? <laughs> so I'm not a big believer uh, in, in, in gold, um, but I'm also recognize that it's been a store of value for over a long period of time. But again, I always think of assets as, you know, things that actually, uh, you know, generate cash flows and, and are helpful. But, but I, I see the role at place. Uh, and I think in India, particularly, I think even the inflationary environment that we've had, it's been actually a decent investment over the long term, right, for people. So I see that, and then it also has the added advantage of, you know, being able to use uh, as a as a jewelry, jewelry right? So yeah, there's yeah. benefit, right? So you derive some other value out of that. Yeah. But uh, you know, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing a single piece of gold. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh you you've invested in some of these new age tech stocks right i was told uh, mm -hmm. now in a new age tech stock if you do a typical intrinsic an intrinsic value analysis it's going to be pretty challenging right so can you talk to us a little bit on how it's worked out for you investing in these new age tech stocks and what are the learnings from there which you know as some of these comes to uh, some companies come to ipo you know the viewers and the listeners can sort of apply that and make a decision on whether they should be investing in those companies or not. Sure. So by and large, you know, we, 
we actually let me take a step back. We've looked at technology because we think that's a very integral part of the way people live their lives today, right? And anything that plays a very important integral role in lives has is deserves a look. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean automatically that you will have the right business model and you can earn it out, but it actually warrants a look. Um, and and so that's the reason to sort of look at technology because again, I think over the course of next decade or two, you will you'll find that your reliance on technology will keep increasing. And as a result, there'll be a lot of value of wealth creation. And it's not, it's not a, an, a, a something revolutionary into the thinking. It has already taken place in other yeah. parts of the world, right? Um, so I think the key then comes down to, do you have the right business, the right business model and the right people you know, behind that? So the way that we've thought about is that we don't need to change our underwriting for looking at technology businesses, right? So we look at them at the same angle, right? Does a business have the ability to generate enough cash at high enough returns on equity and capital? And can that keep growing over a period of time? And, and so again, just from an illustration perspective, the companies that we have invested on technology side, whether public or private, right? So say a company like Apple or India Mart or uh, you know, Truecaller or Gupshop, these are the companies that, uh, yes, they are technology companies. Uh, but they're all profitable cash flow generating businesses, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's what we look for. I think we don't have, you know, we're not in the business of investing in companies that will keep losing cash for a period of time and that dependent on the largest of other investor or capital markets to fund them. Um, and, and I think if you look at it from that lens, you limit your opportunity set quite considerably, but it's a safer way to invest in technology. So all you did was apply a proven framework to these new kinds of stocks and you found the ones that still fit your criteria. So you're writing the growth in the tech, but in a more rational way because there's actually and, a capital. Yeah. The only difference I would say, and this is also a, a big effort, was that is that that the growth and the economics at which that growth comes makes their valuation on trailing basis still look expensive, but at least they have earning and cash flow based valuation, right? Yeah. Which yeah. many other tech companies don't have. So it does. Uh, look like that. And we've had long, you know, we, or, uh, one of the earliest investment in India was an in InfoEdge back in 2008. Oh, right? and, many congratulations for that. <laughs> so, so again, again, it was the same. It was a highly profitable cash flow generating business that was beaten down during the, during the pandemic and was available for quite cheap, right? So, so again, I think businesses like that have, uh, a, a, you know, deserve for you to look at. They may look sometime a bit expensive yeah. If you're looking on the basis of trailing earnings, but again, if you do a very rational, logical analysis, you will find that you're still able to buy them below intrinsic value, right? And and in in cases like again, just from illustration point of view, an Apple or India Mart when we bought them in 2018, um, they've been fantastic investment over the years because again, highly profitable cash flow generating, and that cash flow is increasing at a rapid pace over a period of time. That's a real value creation. Yeah. So I, I, I really like this approach. Uh, you don't have to change your methodology. Approve, don't give up on your proven methodology to invest in new kinds of companies. Apply the same thing. If they are really that good and they've got, you know, they're generating profits and they're going to grow fast, it'll still show up. You can yeah. still do your intrinsic value analysis. So, so that's a great point. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, really big picture. Mm-hmm. Tell us your, you, you came back to India. You know, you obviously, you know, uh, love the country. What I'm trying to uh, get to uh, get an answer from you is on why 
the prospects in India today uh, look, they have, they are very good prospects. Everyone believes in it. But why is it different this time? Because in the past as well, India had all these great things going for itself. But somewhere along the way, we, you know, stuttered and, you know, things went all right. What or do you have the conviction that India is actually in that 10, 20 year phase, which I guess all countries see at some point in time in the lifetime, which is going to be a tremendous growth phase. And therefore, if you play it well, you can actually have a nice ride for your own business or for your investments. So I would, so I'll, I'll try to answer this quickly. I think there was two parts, right? One is that um, I somewhat disagree with this notion that things haven't worked out in the past. I would say that over the past three decades, since the economic liberalization, I think we've made tremendous strides, right? And, and the country has grown through, you know, enormous amount of challenges that have come in place. And in that period, over the last three decades, you've had governments of left, right, center, everything else in between. Um, uh, you've had policy sort of changes, you've had nuclear tests, you've had crises, and everything has happened. And yet country has continued to chug along at a fairly decent economic pace. Right, and the economic growth over those three decades would probably be just um, uh, you know below that of China, right? Uh, but it's been able to outperform pretty much everything else, right? So, in some ways, I think that story has been played out, okay. probably slower than what people would would want or expect. But that's just the nature of a messy democracy, right? That's just the way things unfortunately happen. Um, and 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 so, in some ways, I think you can expect to see. You know, same thing play out, playing out in the future that, you know, things will keep improving, uh, perhaps not as, as good a pace as you would expect, but hopefully a bit better. And there's some factors that are driving that, right, in terms of the way things have played out in the West elsewhere. I mean, the way what's happening to population growth sort of around the world, or, or more importantly, the working age population, right, um, is it, sort of declining in many parts of the world. And in India, at least you have this um, potential benefit. Right, that the working age population is increasing. So, so long as we're able to find uh, a, a, you know, good employment opportunity for them and a value creation that happens through that phase, that bodes very well for the country. Right? And that's why you know, this whole notion of China plus one or looking at India as a strategic partner, all of those things are changing and are happening for India's benefit. But I would say that even before any of that, I think India's path or journey had continued to move along. Right. And it's just the way that elephant moves, right? It just moves slowly, but you know, surely and strongly, right? Overcoming all the obstacles. Yeah, I guess it's a mismatch between expectations and reality. There's a lot that has happened, but we just believed, uh, you know, things would be super. You remember those days uh, of double-digit GDP growth? You know, ten percent, twelve percent. I don't know whether those numbers are right or these numbers are right after they change the methodology. But uh, uh, I think what you've told us is that the basic ingredient of growth which is land labor capital, India has is going to have a lot of labor, even as the rest of the world starts uh, you know, witnessing declining and stagnating populations. So it's a very fundamental core answer. So, so uh, you, you, you clearly believe that there's a 10, 20 year journey ahead, right? That's, that's, what, that's what you seem to be suggesting. And the way to position yourself uh, to benefit from this, uh, you you can do a whole bunch of things, but uh, in your view, is the small cap mid cap space uh, still as under researched as it was when you had those conversations and discussions in two thousand eight? 
And is that still the space that you think will continue to deliver over time? Um, so I think there, uh, there are definitely more people looking at the space and that's a good thing, right? You, generally you want over time more efficiency to happen in the market. But I'll, I think what does remain the same is this notion of people's you know, greed and fear. That doesn't change, right? That's just so intrinsic to sort of human nature that if nothing else, we would always have time arbitrage because we're lucky enough to have long-term capital with us the makeup internally of our team or organization is such that we're always long-term focused. We're willing to accept short-term pain for long-term gain. Um, and, and as a result, we'll always have those opportunities. There'll always be these points of panic where people are willing to throw away good quality companies at very attractive valuations. And, and that would happen far more in smaller companies because even though more people are looking, you know, the amount of research and the quality of research is not as good, and that's why the conviction may not be as good. And that's why they get thrown away. And given that liquidity, they go down even more. So you'll always have those opportunities, right? So I think, uh, and then obviously we, you know, Buffett even today says he's learning, right? So, so you know, so, so you know, we, we are learning along the way as well, right? So you yeah. need to keep getting better at what you do. And I would say that, you know, we, we have this internally, this view that we should look back at what we were five years ago and be able to shake your head and say, we were so naive back then, right? Yeah. We're doing that so much better today. And as long as you keep, you. yeah, as long as you keep doing that, I think you'll always find opportunity. Okay, um, my last set of questions. I'm going to rush this, I'm so sorry. I'm taking up too much of your time. So uh, your wife comes to you and says, mm-hmm. hey, I saved up a crore of rupees in the lockdowns. Uh, what, what should I do with that money? What would you advise her? Well, um, it's two different parts. You know, I would I would probably advise to to invest, but I don't think the advice would be well taken. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I think my my wife, um, uh, you know, was born and brought up in the U.S., but okay. she also sort of grew up in uh, in sort of middle class U.S. Um, environment. So while she loves to shop, but she always likes this, you know, sort of value for money. Right? That's what she gets very excited by. So so I don't think she would be spending a crore. Um, yeah, but I think the place, um, you know, and again, this tying into the earlier part, right? What really gets both of us very excited. I mean, you come to at some stage in life where monetary things can only add to so much of your pleasure, right? And that, and that was so, so the thing that, um, and, and, you know, that sort of excites us the most. And in our case, she sort of devoted her entire life to educating kids from, um, from underprivileged backgrounds. Oh, wow. um, and uh, that's what she was doing in the U.S., and that's what she's been doing in, in there for the last uh, 15, 16 years. And, and, and again, you know, we've seen this in our case, right? I mean, education was a single biggest factor, right, in terms of changing the trajectory of my life and of many others like us, right? And so, so I think the biggest thing you can do is to provide the same opportunity to others who have the, uh, the aptitude and, and desire but they may not have the resources, right? And so, uh, you know, so, so, you know, thankfully, because we are in this privileged position to do something about it. Uh, so, you know, as uh, as boring as it may sound, we might end up spending a bulk of that money on trying to do something. And that's what gives the most pleasure, right? I mean, it's just amazing to see some of those kids, um, you know, who, with the help of education, not just change their lives, but also, of their families, right? Yeah. So it just takes a long time. It's not 
instant gratification. Cascading effect is a very positive yeah. cascading effect. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, that's that's very inspiring. Uh, you have uh, you have kids. One, two. Yes, yeah. we have two kids. Very young kids. So we we sort of came onto this parenting journey a little late. Okay. Uh, so we have the joy of having two uh, very young kids. So a lot of excitement. Wow. Uh, so, and, you know, when we when I come home, they come running. Running to me, oh. and I know that it's not going to last very long. <laughs> but, you know, but I'm enjoying what it lasts. Relish every moment. <laughs> Relish every moment. Yeah. Uh, so they're too young. So uh, my question was going to be, uh, how are you teaching them about money? Uh, so I don't know whether you've had any conversations with them, because I think when they're born, so you know, uh, sometimes when you're when you're born in an environment which is always sufficient, right? Uh, it is. It's, it's important to figure out a way to teach them how difficult it is to make money or how easy it is it to lose it or you know to spend it away so have you had any conversation or still too early so i haven't had that conversation but i think it's it's important right? but you know thankfully i think uh, you know both me and my wife sort of came from that middle class background you know those values deeply inculcated even today the way we lead our lives is not you know materially different you know from that right so uh, so in a way, you know, I hope that, you know, they will sort of absorb some of those values. And if not, we'll have the conversation. And also, I think this notion that, you know, you want to, you know, you don't want to guide them in any particular direction, let them figure out what they want to do. And you want to, from monetary perspective, you want to give them enough that they can choose to do anything that they want, but, but not give so much that they can choose to do nothing. Nothing, yeah. yeah. That, that's, those are golden words, you know, everyone, everyone needs to sort of absorb them and uh, actually practice it. Uh, my final question. Uh, you're, of course, very well read. Uh, give us some suggestions on, you know, what people should read. Uh, any, you know, uh, any subject. What what do you think makes a person more whole, right? In uh, that. And also, if you can talk a little bit about what global media you read and which could help people, you know, sort of broaden their perspective. Got it. So I think on the investing side, I... Uh... I would say the book uh, I, that has shaped my thinking the most is, um, uh, you know, is is by Phil Fisher, uh, the Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. So I think that that's a great book, um, you know, in terms of how to research companies, really understand the business, invest with a very long-term perspective. Um, so anybody who wants to be a fundamental long-term investor, I think that's a great book for uh, for a person to read. Um, for somebody who's investing as an individual investor, I think, you know, Peter Lynch's uh, book are great, you know, one of Wall Street, oh, I think it's a great example of, how, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, how, how individuals can actually, uh, you know, beat, uh, beat uh, institutional investors. And, um, and, and for people who are interested in small caps, there's a book uh, called A Zebra and a Lion Country. That's a very interesting, okay. uh, you know, book to, book, book to read. Uh, so that's from an investment perspective. You know, I, I really like um, history. Right? So I think reading reading history books is very fascinating. And 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 uh, you know, again, as I said, I was lucky enough early on to to be in different parts of the world and and to learn about that culture. But I would say, even in India, I think I had an appreciated sort of post-independent history of India and and this um, India after Gandhi by Ramchandra Gaur was a yeah. great eye-opening. Book to learn about sort of what has taken place and 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 when you when you read those things it helps you on helps you understand what's happening today 
in a very different light, right? So it's sort of quite, quite, quite helpful. Um, in terms of global media, I mean, I, the thing that I've consistently read over long term is The Economist. And, and that's something that I enjoy. I think it's a good mix of, you know, just being current around a lot of things that are happening around the world. It's an easy quick read. Um, so I still sort of out of habit keep uh, keep following that. Did, did you say it's a quick read? I try and read it every week. <laughs> I've been reading it. It it takes up all my time. <laughs> probably I don't know how many 30,000 words in the yeah, yeah, magazine. Yeah. If you're reading it cover to cover, yeah. So yeah, so I think the trick there is to prioritize and pick uh, pick things. Yeah. If you start with the, the you know the cover to cover, that's going to take a lot lot of time. Yeah. That's also, I mean, a yeah. lot of things online, right? So they they have the online app and. Yeah. They they have news every day there, right? So, yeah. and many of those things go on to become articles in the that's in the right. magazine. Uh, yeah. So usually that's sort of one of the first things I end up doing. So, yeah. so I think it's very important for, uh, you know, everyone to read global media. That perspective helps. And sometimes we are just a few years behind the rest of the world in several aspects, right? So that's like a low hanging fruit uh, that you can, uh, you know, tap into in a country that's, you know, in like, which is just a little behind and the trend may play out here. Absolutely, uh, and 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 having a balanced perspective, right? I mean, uh, and then India is a very thriving media, and it's great. Yeah. But at you know, at times it tends to become a little bit more uh, triumphalistic, if you will. Right? There's a lot of you know a nationalistic view in there, which is again great, right? For any country, it's important yeah. to have that spread. But you need to have uh, you need to have sort of balanced viewpoints, um, independent viewpoints, and it's helpful to. And, and I think you need to uh, you, uh, to make you a good uh, uh, to make you better in everything you do. You need to be able to understand the opposite view as well as, if not better than the other guy himself, right? And uh, yeah. those those just make you a lot more sharp. It takes time. You have to invest time and in, you know read up everything and study everything and think over it. So, so one easy way that I found is to actually confuse Google News, right? So I always end up also <laughs> clicking on things where I just disagree with the topic completely. And over time, the algorithms get confused and they, they try to show you both. And, and it's good, wow. right? It helps yeah. you get a balanced perspective, right? That's a nice thing. That, that's <laughs> wonderful. So it uh, uh, goes back to your curiosity thing, right? You want to be uh, learning and absorbing both sides of the coin and uh, learning everything. So, uh, Sumit, it's been super well. I'm, I'm sorry I uh, took more time than we had planned. But this I'm is a just, very, very long hour. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just fascinated with what we've spoken. Uh, there's so much to take away. The stories you've narrated, uh, your, your, your journey at Malabar, and of course, the small and mid-cap space. And the filters that you spoke of, I think that is gold, pure gold. I hope uh, people take notes when they see this and they try and implement some of this. So with that, Sumit, thank you very much for taking time. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll have you once again sometime next year and we'll plan the time better. So it'll be the actual time and not uh, expanded time. No, this has been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a good uh, long conversation. And and other than illustrations, I think we didn't talk about stocks. It's very, really focused on principles yeah, and, right. and sort of personal journey. So, you know, very happy to share that. Yeah, because I think this is going to make a longer term impact, right? Knowing what's going to happen in the markets three days from now or three months from now is not going to change your life. But if you can, I don't even know. I don't groups, even know the answer to that. Yeah. There you go. But if you can <laughs> learn from people, you know the frameworks, the structures they're built around their lives. I think that is a, that that is real stuff. And thank, well, thank you for you. sharing thank all you. the real thank stuff you. with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. 
I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.